0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Loopcast. I'm Chelsea Damon, and today we have Daniel Skarnekia on the show to talk about the intersection of technology and humanitarianism. So, first of all, thank you for coming on the show, Daniel, and you're a new guest to the Loopcast.
1: Yes, I am. Well, thank you for for having me on. I'm I'm looking forward to this, and um, yeah, so uh, let's um, pick up wherever you would like me to pick up. For
0: our listeners, I will give you a little idea of who Daniel is. He is a researcher that focuses on the role of technology and how it plays in humanitarian crises and responses. He was most recently with the Harvard Humanitarian Initiatives single, Signal Program on human security and technology, where he focused primarily on standards, ethics, and governance, governance of technology and humanitarian responses. He also has worked on projects looking at the role of disinformation in the Syrian conflict, and he has co-authored a handful of pieces, including a report called The Signal Code, A Human Rights Approach to Information During Crises" and Ethical Obligations for Humanitarian Information Activities. So he's the perfect person for this topic, and I'm, like I said, very happy that you're on the show, Dan. So we wanted you to come on the Loopcast because you had a piece recently in Medium that was great, and in it, you state that today we are at the moment of rapid technological change. Digital technologies are affecting our societies and politics in unprecedented ways, and the institutions with which safeguard our society are just beginning to grapple with implications. So why don't you discuss this? Because this is a very powerful statement that you start off with, and we'd love to jump into it here on the Loopcast.
1: Sure. So it's you know it's kind of a broad sentence and and deliberately so and i 'll tell you a little bit of how I came to it initially just of course you know uh, the work that I've been doing has primarily been focused on uh, the role of technology in humanitarian response and the concept of digital humanitarianism has been around for a while um, you know it started uh, with this uh, idea of course uh, you know well, it didn't necessarily start but it became popular with this idea of crisis mapping and um, Really, around the uh, twenty eleven haiti earthquake and uh, the role of technology in humanitarian response has has grown over the years of course as technology has become sort of a broad part of all of our lives uh, and you know there's especially when we're talking about, well, and I should clarify that when I say technology, I really mean digital technology, digital information and communications technology, because technology is really how you do anything, but the distinction is important because digital technology has um, really changed the way we function as organizations and as societies in terms of our our relationship with information. And that's continuing to change uh, with the sort of uh, advent and diffusion of social media into our society. And so, we initially came to this, of course, as, you know, the you know, looking at how humanitarian organizations were using technology, and um, broadly speaking, of course, you know, the idea of, of digital technology as a way to improve efficiency was driving the discourse, and uh, you know, for good reason. In an era where you have a large number of humanitarian crises, you know, more more refugees since the end of World War II, and of course, shrinking budgets. Um, but what often got left out of that conversation, of course, was uh, the, the sort of rights of, of the crisis affected. Um, there was generally a focus on how these could help us, a general sense of techno-optimism, um, but no um, real focus on things like how it would affect the privacy and security of individuals who were affected by crisis, um, how we were... Really understanding the risks associated with these technologies as uh, organizations. Again, um, while the private sector is uh, usually uh, regulated, now to, you can, we can argue about how well they're regulated, but they're they're usually regulated in various degrees by states. Um, the humanitarian sector, of course, works across states. Um, Uh, You know, large organizations like the UN, organizations, uh, other international organizations, usually have some degree of privileges and immunities, meaning that um, you know, you know that that either broad rights regimes uh, on the regional level or state law doesn't necessarily apply to those activities. Uh, and then of course um smaller ngos don't necessarily have the capacity um to either uh engage in compliance activities or to simply sort of uh implement uh te- you know information technology in a in a professional way now that has been changing and i don't want to be overly critical but that's sort of how we came to this now uh looking at all of this and of course uh, through the course of my work i also got engaged On humanitarian disinformation and I have colleagues that are doing uh, other work on how uh, technology and um, really things like mobile technology are affecting the crisis affected, you know, the IDPs, the refugees, uh, people who live in conflict and disaster zones. And what we we sort of realized uh, of course was that uh, because we were so focused on how technology might benefit or, or improve sort of the efficiency of, of our work. We didn't really have an understanding of how, one, that technology was related to um, individuals who were affected by crisis, but but also how they were using technology themselves. Um, and so, for example, my colleague Danny uh, Poole, who is a, a PhD candidate at the School of Public Health here, has done a lot of her doctoral work on how Refugees coming out of the Syrian crisis are using mobile phones, and in particular, looking at how it's affecting uh, things like uh, mental health outcomes. And um, so she's, um, you know, talked to refugees and done surveys with refugees in uh, in Greece, Syrian refugees. And, and you have to remember that this was a society that before the conflict had, uh, in the urban areas, relatively good diffusion of 3G, you know, mobile phones. So, you know, the paradigm for thinking about how they're relating to technology is pretty much how we relate to technology. It's uh, easy to conjure up, you know, uh, sort of a historical notion of, uh, you know, a refugee uh, in a camp somewhere who's, um, you know, dirt poor and doesn't have any material possessions. And that's really... Um, that's a very sort of uh, Western centric. I should I should say sort of uh, almost neocolonial projection of of what we think the outside world looks like. Now, especially you know, well across the world, you know, mobile phones are 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 um, becoming ubiquitous, and then especially in a in a country that was you know a relatively you know middle upper middle income country like Syria before the crisis, you had lots of people with smartphones already. Um. And what she was looking at, of course, was how it was how access to phones was affecting their their mental health outcomes and what the sort of differentiators are. So, for example, prior to her study, we we did not really have a good sense of how gender uh, might be affecting uh, how people access mobile phones and then the effects it might have on, say, their mental health. And what she found was that women. Uh, men tend to own phones and women generally had less access to phones and found subsequently that women um, had much higher rates of uh, moderate to severe uh, depression Um, and one of the frequent for the frequently cited reasons was, of course, that they didn't have uh, ready access to phones, but through which they could, you know, talk to the diaspora, um, talk to their extended family, and so there's little things like that that are sort of the important bit of doing science around um, how technology affects individuals, but um, are you know hadn't been done up into that point, point. and then the other thing is, sort of that's if that's the micro level of sort of how the technology relates to individuals who are caught up in crisis. Um, the sort of uh, effects on our societies and politics are things that we're just also starting to unpack. And I think you know, most people listening will be familiar with the discussions around sort of hybrid warfare, disinformation, and, and these concepts related really to Russian interference in, um, in elections um, in the West – Uh, And, of course, when we started looking at disinformation um, ourselves, it was sort of driven by the idea that, you know, okay, we've sort of, you know, there's there's some anecdotal signals that we're seeing. Let's take a closer look around how this is being used in the Syrian conflict. What's been interesting, of course, about that, and, and the reason I wrote that piece, is that, we often still talk about these as singular events. Uh, we don't talk about them through sort of a political science lens or notion of uh, power and politics, and so we tend to to lose sight of um, the the ways that the technology is affecting politics globally, and that's the politics within which humanitarian response exists, um, as in addition to sort of the the single cases. So. When we, um, you know, look at things like social media, we don't, you know, we, we, we are sort of stuck in this moment or we're in this moment where we're just sort of starting to internalize the ramifications. And of course, we don't fully understand the ramifications. It's sort of something that's still being debated and understood. And in the humanitarian sector, I would argue that we're a bit further behind in that because, again... Um, there's no singular discipline of humanitarian studies. There's a number of different related disciplines which constitute humanitarian studies, and none of them have really gotten to the point where they've had to focus on grappling with sort of the societal changes fostered by technology.
0: And that was actually one of my questions, that this focus on singular cases is an issue. And I was wondering if you could discuss the implications of that and what does it mean for the broad study of humanitarianism and new emerging technologies?
1: Well, I'm going to argue that it's going to depend a little bit on the type of technology. But when it comes to, say, things like social media and uh, that we're starting to see, you know, uh, well, social media in the sense that, that it, it's sort of being used as a, an instrument of power, for example, Um. You have a few different ways in which that is happening. You have sort of the the use case, uh, you know, in Myanmar, where you all of a sudden have uh, you know thirty million people online, or perhaps even more um, online, uh, in the last five years, who really prior to that um, didn't have uh, access to mobile technology of any sort. You um, you know, I believe in in two thousand twelve in 2011 or 2012, there were, you know, fewer than 10,000 SIM cards in, in Myanmar. Um, and now you have a society, um, I think there's, I think it's 60 million and I think 44 million people are connected and 30 million are on Facebook or, or something of that nature. And so of course you also, it's a society that's transitioning between autocratic rule and, um, Democracy, and that, of course, is where societies are usually the least stable, uh, and can veer one way or the other. Um, And you have um, a number of ethnic minorities across the country. And what it sort of seems like what has happened with uh, sort of the proliferation of Facebook uh, via Free Basics is is you know we've seen a conscious effort on the part of uh, you know the, the military. To um, spread rumors and paint, uh, you know, uh, the Rohingya as, uh, you know, really, you know, the enemy of of Myanmar society, and you know, and this is this is all um, sort of, it, you know, everybody had a sense it was it was happening, uh, and you know, you can certainly there's room to debate the the you know effects that the technology had versus sort of the other effects, um, you know, the the other causes of violence in a society. Um, you know, I don't want to be completely prescriptivist and say that, you know, it is only the technology. But the technology introduces some new complications. Um, you know, things like social media uh, really do change our relationship with information. Uh, there's some really good work. I mean, it goes back 40 years at this point, looking at how information spreads through social networks. And, of course, um, when you increase the density of sort of weak ties or bridging ties, which is, you know, people who are not necessarily in your close periphery, but they are sort of people who you would, um, you know, go to for, you know, to say find a job or who would link together different, you know, activist groups, um, information they you know, they bring new information into your group that wouldn't come in otherwise. Um, you know, most of your novel information comes through those ties because, most your close friends already know everything that you're going to be talking about they're you know there there's the the mechanism by which then new new ideas flow in so social media does a lot of things and one of the things it does do is is introduce uh, new you know the, it it it, it, inter- it makes it easier to introduce new information into in into sort of discrete groups and it does that in part by visualizing the weak ties so it can turn latent ties into weak ties you know ties that latent ties are those sort of ones that exist mathematically but they haven't been activated Um, and in this case once they become activated if it increases that density it's increasing the amount of new information people are exposed to and so in a society like Myanmar um, although I would argue that this is also happening here because you know we like to talk about digital literacy but at the end of the day um, you know we see how we tend to, as a society, share plenty of, of fake news, and, and I hate the term fake news, but disinformation and, and misinformation. Um, and so, you know, of course, when that's put to the ends of violence, it reaches a whole lot of people a lot more quickly than, say, a broadcast medium like radio might. Uh, and so that might be changing the effects of um Power dynamics within states, uh, in ways that you know, uh, increase political tensions, cause ethnic violence, or drive ethnic violence, and allow political actors within those states to, just for you know, for their own ends, further those um, those aims. On the international scale, and I think that this is is when we look at Syria um, and a lot of the work that we've done there. This is what. Um, this is where I tend to, to sort of move away from the, the discussion of talking about it as a singular set of cases and, and avoid talking about it in terms of warfare, because if you go to, to the political science literature and, and I know um, Dan Nixon and, and Stacey Goddard have done a lot of work on uh, sort of the tools of statecraft and um, they sort of point to social media as a, sort of a new phenomenon in the sense that it's a new technology. It's, it's, becoming part of an old struggle. Um, and it gives states, potentially gives states new ways of engaging in that, uh, but it is not introducing anything new in terms of what states are doing. Um, and so there, what states, of course, are doing is engaging in um, traditional power politics. And, uh, well, I should say states are doing it, but also plenty of non-state actors are doing it. And you're, of course, much more familiar with how non-state actors like ISIS, you know, might be using these technologies to, to sort of increase recruitment and further their power. Um, it's a tool of propaganda. It's, it's a tool that's used essentially to um, fracture the uh, sort of, Social cohesion necessary within rival societies uh, to uh, counter uh, an activity. So, you know, Russia might be using it in Syria. Um, Maybe not even in particular. You know, a lot of the disinformation that we see there is focused on the white helmets. But, you know, the why of the white helmets is always a a salient question. Now, I suspect it's because they have GoPros uh, and they're documenting evidence of atrocities. And, well, we have plenty of, you know, third parties credibly reporting that the atrocities, um, you know, the sarin gas attacks were committed predominantly by, and chlorine gas for that matter, too, were were committed by regime forces. Um, if you can call that into question, it makes it much, um, it's sort of a, a tool of deterrence. Um, and by deterrence, I mean, it makes it harder for states like the U.S., um, like uh, the the u k to um, comprehensively you know strike back when uh, some somebody uh, violates international law um, and it makes it sort of politically more difficult to uh, prosecute. Um, uh, these crimes, you know, later, if you have, uh, say, politi- large political constituencies in states that would normally be driving war crimes prosecutions, that think that the attacks are actually false flag, um, because at the end of the day, politicians um, are really—they're uh, at least in the West, where we have democracies—beholden uh, to uh, populations and their political constituencies. So that's always. Um, you know that, that's what I mean by sort of disrupting um, sort of social cohesion is it sort of drives all these factors which make it much more difficult uh, to deter, say violations of international law. And of course, what that means for humanitarian response is you we are ostensibly uh, neutral in um, impartial actors. Um, now the politics of humanitarianism is much more complicated than that. Um, but you do have organizations like the RCRC, which are sort of rigidly and um, deliberately impartial. And, you know, they, they, they talk to both sides. They provide aid to all sides. Um, but the way that these, uh, you know, the rhetoric that we're seeing around these technology, of course, is, you know, taking shape is it, it's designed to call into question even some of that impartiality. Um, you know, a lot of the White Helmet stuff and the serious stuff it sort of grew out of skepticism of Western motives around intervention, um, but it paints it with a broad, very broad brush because it isn't intended to be nuanced. It's sort of intended to paint everything as cover for, say, Western intervention in the conflict. And so as humanitarians, when a technology comes along that changes sort of that social... Uh, or that political milieu on the international level in which we exist, I think it's important that we start to understand and internalize that because otherwise we're sort of, one, operating in the dark in terms of the risks to ourselves, and then, two, um, we're being acted against um, you know, by, you know, actors within the conflict that want to instrumentalize aid and and make it part of the conflict. And then finally, it makes it harder to uphold the political norms and the um, sort of legal norms, which um, really both protect civilians, protect humanitarians, and drive the idea of humanitarian response as a thing that can exist in in the uh, international political order.
0: Are humanitarian organizations aware of this, this use of information for whether it's spreading disinformation or spreading a specific narrative, are they aware of it and are they starting to create measures to either counter it or keep their workers aware so that individuals that are going to countries where there are potential conflicts or some of the countries you've just mentioned and discussed – that they're aware of the situation, they have the information that they need to operate on the ground and help people, which that's pretty much what they're there to do, not get involved in all the politics of what's taking place.
1: You know, I think to a certain extent, yes, and to a certain extent, no, which is not a particularly satisfying answer. You know, one thing we have to, of course, remember is that rumor has always been part of uh, humanitarianism. And we do a lot to try and, you know, I know Internews, for example, has done a lot to try and dispel the spread of rumors, especially the kind of rumors that spread among refugees and, and can, can cause, um, you know, cause them harm. Um, on the sort of broader political side, there's also, of course, always going to be political actors within states that are going to be trying to instrumentalize response or, you know, they will look for a reason to um, throw out humanitarian actors. Now, traditionally with humanitarian response, um, humanitarians have to be invited in by the sort of the, the, the government that's recognized as sovereign. Um, it's you know, not the sort of thing um, where you can, go in and just start delivering aid. And so in Syria, for example, one of the problems you encountered was that from the get-go, you end up being instrumentalized there because you are only allowed to access uh, territory held by the um, syrian Arab uh, government, uh, so Assad's government. Uh, and it, they made it much more difficult to access rebel-held territory. And so that's why you have organizations like groups like the White Helmets spring up and, um, and get funded by you know outside actors uh, in order to you know essentially they are providing those services as best they can within those um, those territories that we're not allowed access to and and that of course is you know one of the perils of civil conflict you know there's there's a debate of course as to sort of how far the right to humanitarian aid extends um, you know within the sort of legal and academic literature and. As you know, the Geneva Conventions were written in 1949, and the additional protocols came about in 1977. And only one of the additional protocols really deals with um, civil, with with conflict uh, within a state, as opposed to international conflict. And so, the tools, the legal tools that we have to sort of even start thinking about delivering aid to um, sort of rebel-held territories uh, are a lot more. uh, limited than you might have uh, with an internationalized uh, or an international conflict. And then of course where that gets kind of sticky um, and interesting and, and uh, challenging is of course you also have humanitarianism that is driven by states. So the US has USAID of course and USAID does a lot of, of work around the world uh, That's that's really good work. But they're also limited because they're much um, their hands are tied in some ways by US law a lot more than say the ICRC would be um, and in some ways you could argue that that instrumentalizes aid, too. and this is not at all related to technology this is just politics um, so for example when you look at Afghanistan the reason that you know MSF and the ICRC are the groups that are primarily uh, providing aid in Taliban-held held territory is because they are political actors that have a neutral relationship with all parties, as opposed to a lot of NGOs that might be close to um, – DFID, which is the UK's um, sort of version of USAID, or or USAID, who are, you know, it, their their hands are tied by material support laws, and their hands are tied by um, the risks associated with being perceived uh, as being close to a specific set of uh, parties' conflict, uh, or parties to the conflict. Um, now, again, like I said, that's politics that's not technology. Um, but this is why, I, you know, that where it gets a little complicated is, of course, when we start talking about social media, for example, and, and the sort of macro scale kind of uh, politics associated with it, you know, the, the tools that you need are not necessarily technological ones. Um, they're, they're really um, very much political tools. And, uh, you know, if you're an actor who's already on the ground, um, if you're an international actor, the odds of you actually going someplace um, in one of those conflicts where you're going to be uh, sort of in, in danger are relatively low to say what local actors would, will be experiencing anyway. Um, and so the sort of duty of care to inform people about the risks associated with, um, say, the uh, a certain type of technology changing the political landscape uh, is something that that varies um, and is probably not too well articulated because you know we have uh, had some recent cases about sort of the duty of care that ngos owe uh, to their um, their employees you have uh, some recent um, you know I don't want to say scandals, but the news stories around that when it comes to the U.N. And, of course, when it comes to technology, we're still trying to figure out what our duty of care is to whom. Um, And when you come to some of those larger political problems, I think that that calculus is not necessarily going to be associated with technology. And so when organizations become aware of it is when it becomes a political risk or when it does become a personnel risk, um, but at a political level and not sort of at a technological level. If and that would, makes sense.
0: No, that that makes complete sense. And would you say that there are things available through technology that could actually help the humanitarian cause and organizations, and what might those be?
1: Absolutely. I mean, in a lot of ways, it's the same sets of technologies. Um, you know, social media is a fantastic advocacy tool. Um a lot of the reason that technology, you know, digital um, information, communications technology has been so I mean, eagerly um, uh, adopted by the humanitarian sector is, is both for efficiency's sake, but because it does have other benefits like improving situational awareness. Um, you know, a lot of the, the challenges over the last several years have been, of course, you know, the sort of experimental nature of playing with new technologies. So you um, you're, Playing, you're, you're using new technologies to try and improve response in places where human lives are at stake. And and you have to be very careful that you're not in, for say the sake of innovation engaging in human subjects experimentation. Um, and you know, there there are that is one of the major challenges in the sector. I think we've focused too much on newness and on you know trying to improve things with technology and not enough on the rights of, of individuals and the affected. But if I were to say that, you know, when it comes to technology, you essentially are talking about a set of tools that um, I think uh, the ICRC called it. um, Actually, I'm I'm blanking on what they called it, but it's essentially a paradox because there are sets of tools. WhatsApp, for example, um, is, again, becoming fairly ubiquitous. It's the tool that a lot of people already used in Syria to communicate um, and so now that um, you know there's a conflict, and it, you know it can help them because it can help them find safety, um, but it can also be used to harm them. Um, the metadata coming out of messaging apps can can be used to cause harm. Um, the biometrics that we're starting to employ in refugee camps, um, the idea, of course, there was around efficiency and improving response and making sure that people were getting. Um, the aid that they were entitled to, it was also designed to, of course, do things like reduce fraud, um, which is an interesting thing. I don't know if you really want to be looking at beneficiaries through a sort of adversarial lens like that, but I, of course, understand why organizations are concerned about that from the perspective of donors being concerned about it. Um, that being said, those technologies you know, can also be used to very easily track people um, and you uh, are we already have the concept of personally identifiable information of course where you can with a lot of these technologies re-identify people um, you know anonymization is not something that's particularly robust anywhere and then of course you know when you're dealing with uh, especially conflict settings or even in disaster settings where you have you know racial or ethnic tensions you have the risks of, of you know those technologies being used to um, you know Determine people's ethnicity and so the state, you know, the state power, the powers that, you know, be are, you know, have ways to weaponize that same technology that an aid organization might be using to uh, try and help people.
0: And considering all of this, there's been a huge debate, of course, in my research field of radicalization and radical content online and how tech companies and social media companies should or shouldn't be responsible for things disseminated on their platforms. So looking at it from the lens of what we're talking about, what are your thoughts on the role of tech and social media companies in all of this?
1: So That's a really difficult question to answer because I think what we end up doing is we, we talk at we end up having a conversation about regulation a lot of the time and it's, you know, and, and, it is a very difficult space to regulate, um, for a number of reasons. And I think, you know, I, while I often disagree, um, with some of, you know, with, with his, his conclusions, I think Alex Stamos does a good job of pointing out, uh, who's, you know, Facebook's former head of security does a good job of pointing out that the challenges associated with regulation And, and regulation, of course, often has unintended consequences. Um, You know, it it is one of those things that it can give states um, more control. uh, Say vis-a-vis activists, Um, you we see that with a lot of fake news legislation. It's being used as a a, an excuse to crack down on dissent in states that don't necessarily have the best human rights records to begin with. But on the other hand, there's by not regulating. Technology, there's a couple of things that I think happen and And one is very deliberate on the part of Silicon Valley, which is that free speech is the only human right. Um, you know, coming from my perspective, you know and and you know being a big advocate for a rights based approach to how we deal with technology, of course, there are far more rights uh, than you know are provided. Uh, well there there's far more than just uh, freedom of speech or freedom of expression that that matter um you know and and privacy is obviously one of them and you can argue about whether privacy can be you know sort of suspended during things like national emergencies i mean when you look at international law there are there are ways to abrogate certain rights but there are certain rights that are completely unalienable when we we look at you know and the right to security and um, and uh, security of person is one, for example. And the, the question that we need to, to start asking, of course, is when we look at technology um, and we take a free speech sort of uh, over-everything-else approach, what are the rights that we are then sort of diminishing? Um, you know, historically, privacy, for example, and um, freedom of speech are held in tension. Um, and, of course, those tensions are, are litigated out and there are really um, compromised solutions, and that's how we govern societies. And, you know, I think in the 21st century, we're starting to realize that it's not just a tension. There's not just a tension between, say, free speech and privacy, but there's a a tension between free speech and and security of person that we're also just starting to deal with, especially as these, these technologies both provide major benefits to human society, but also... Uh, have the potential, and in some cases, are demonstrably causing serious harm to, to to society. And then, of course, you know when it comes to things like um, conflict settings, in particular, you have um, you know international humanitarian law. Um, pro, you know, especially with um, international conflicts, you have it. Um, you know the rules of war governing that. You also the rules of war do govern, um, you know, civil conflict as well. But um, the rights there that, of course, protect civilians. Um, you know, it's it's to limit the effects of total war. And there's no space in which, of course, IHL gets litigated out. Um, there's no court that deals with it, except for you know. Special tribunals that that uh, may get set up when you know atrocities have been committed, um, and you know I think I think one of the things that we ran into, of course, when we were say looking at Syria is you know how do you define um, you know a group like the White Helmets? They're they're not traditional humanitarians. They're not the recognized say civil defense force of Syria, um, but they're civilians, and there are sp- very specific ways in which those rules are applied. Um, towards civilians, um, those rules, you know, and and how you interpret who is an armed actor and who is a civilian, and um, especially in a conflict that is um, one where you have a lot of non-state actors. And so one of the ways these technologies are being used, of course, is in an attempt to um, claim that the White Helmets are terrorists and that they um, are legitimate targets. And it's a really interesting space because you run into – What's happening is essentially um, some of that is state actors, but some of it's legitimate political speech by people who think that this is a cover for, you know, Western intervention. And so how you regulate a situation like that where they're promoting a falsehood because they're not lawyers, and I'll caveat this by the fact that I'm not a lawyer either – you know and so when we talk about international law we all tend to lose sight of there's a lot of complications and nuance with any body of law that has an internal set, sort of internal logic and so we're not really playing uh, in the area of law what we are doing is playing in the area of politics when we have a lot of those arguments online and so uh, by advocating for the fact that these people you know that that the, the white by the by advocating for the fact that the white helmets are legitimate targets, you're really engaging in a political discourse that's a little bit divorced from the reality of what the law says. And and when, um, you know, people are doing that because they, you know, hold a political belief um, and they are misinformed, um, that's arguably legitimate political speech. And how you deal with that is very different than how you deal with someone like, Um, you know, how you deal with Sputnik or RT or, I mean, frankly, if we're being intellectually honest, things like, you know, Voice of America fall into sort of similar state media. And then there's state actors, which are clearly just propaganda that are, um, you know, not declaring themselves as being associated with, say, media. They, you know, you know, when it comes to, you know, we saw this all about, you know, all around the U.S. elections, of course, with how, you know, Russian intelligence was driving a lot of these conversations as well. And, you know, the colleagues that I've I've done work with on the um, Syria example have done some further work looking on how specific narratives emerge. And it's very, very hard to um, sort of argue that it's um, something that's completely driven by, say, a single state actor. Because what you actually end up seeing are sort of collaborative spaces where, networks of individuals and activists, state parties, um, all come together and sort of collaborate around crafting strategic narratives that suit their aims. And they, you know, it's not a cohesive network because people come in, drop out as sort of their political agenda changes, as their advocacy agenda changes. And so I'd be very hard pressed to look at a space like that. And, and this is actually part of the point is that when you have a space that messy and complicated, it makes it very difficult to regulate. So that's an advantage to people who want to use the technology to, again, disrupt um, the ability for states to sort of respond coherently to things like atrocities. And so um, I don't have good answers for how we should, you know, regulate it. Uh, I do think that Social media firms, technology firms in general, do need to take a better, they need to t- they, they, they need to have more responsibility for dealing with some of these problems. I mean, there's, of course, the extremely radical idea that, you know, maybe we should be questioning whether these technologies are even good ideas to begin with. And, you know, I don't think you're ever going to unring the bell of, say, social media, but we should pause and think through the unintended consequences of technology before um, you know, we sort of wholeheartedly, um, adopt it and, um, you wholesale into our society, uh, if you will. Um, so I'm sorry, that's probably not a very satisfying answer because there's just, uh, every time I have this conversation about what should be done, you can go down so many different rabbit holes and end up getting to, to just very either unsatisfying conclusions or you can end up in places where there are super radical unintended consequences that create additional challenges
0: I completely agree it's a very sensitive question and topic I deal with it myself and I'm still not sure what end of the spectrum if there is even an end of the spectrum that I stand on I think there's many forces involved so it's it's hard to just take one stance um, Going back to something that you mentioned in the talk about the laws, the laws of war and who is considered a civilian or an actor, would you say that potentially with these new technologies and almost a new form of warfare that we're seeing with using technologies, using actual fighting on the ground, etc., and using also narratives to sway conflicts and politics towards or against a certain narrative, would you say that some of the traditional rules and laws that govern conflict should potentially be looked at and adjusted or even changed or things added?
1: So, yes and no. Um, I'm not going to advocate for changing the law. I'm not going to advocate for, you know, Microsoft has been pushing for the idea of a fifth Geneva Convention, I think there are risks inherent to any um, revising um, or, or or adding new laws at this point because you know you have to recall, of course, that states will during that drafting process take advantage of it as they can, and we may not like the outcomes. Um, and you know I, the current set of conventions came about in a period following um, the end of of World War II, and they were contentious enough, um, but that you know it, it, there was a real need, and there was a real moment of sort of systems change occurring um, where a new you know a new global order was was coalescing around um, you know a, a set of powers, and I, I think that. Not to say that that's a completely unique point in history, but I think that um, you know, the sort of lobbying and advocacy and uh, required to do that is that is, is it does, it does take sort of a special time and a unique set of circumstances. And um, that's not to say that we haven't achieved things in international law since, um, but I would be wary of... The, essentially at a now when we're at a moment of increasing, you know, multipolarity again, and you have lots of revisionism opening the door to weakening the existing sets of, of rules and and laws. Um, what I do think is necessary and, and, um, my colleagues and I have, you know, uh, every, every chance that we we've had, uh, you know, where we've, we've been on stage with, you know, you know, high, high level folks from the, uh, the International uh, Committee for the Red Cross, which is, you know, shocking to me, but but we have uh, been, uh, you know, had the privilege to uh, sort of be in these discussions, um, is uh, you know, press for a commentary. What we do need essentially is clarification about how existing law and the existing rules of war apply. And I mean, I think that there are a lot of cases where it's pretty cut and dry. I mean. You know, the ICRC is a great example of an organization that you know, they, they tend not to, unless things are really bad, condemn any actors publicly. They, they make private entreaties uh, to remind warrant um, parties of their obligations under the law. And a lot of what we've just been talking about with technology, when it comes to rights and when it comes to sort of... Um, you know, non-IHL sort of lenses. It, it, you know, you're looking at that sort of what you see. A lot of these are happening outside the conflict zone. They're they're not part of the you know what is considered that you know, um, they're they're not happening in a in a territory that is conflicted. So, um, IHL doesn't apply. And um, but when of course you have warring parties that are engaging in now those warring parties, their activities can potentially be policed, um, and. Under the existing law, I'm again not an IHL lawyer, so I would recommend talking to one there. Um, but if there were a potential violation, there would be avenues through which say, the ICRC would be able to go and, you know, again entreat states and and non-state actors uh, to fulfill their obligations under the law. Um, and of course, there are other mechanisms. You know, you see. that are sort of more ad hoc, but, you know, UN fact-finding missions um, and reports and then um, that are able to sort of uh, publicize, you know, how these technologies may have been used. So, again, with Myanmar, you know, we don't have a clear uh, sort of sense of necessarily – Well, I should say with Myanmar, Facebook kind of stonewalled, uh, at least according to the UN, they stonewalled that fact-finding mission. Um, But we do have plenty of reporting that shows how the generals, um, you know, used um, Facebook to sort of spread um, the uh, anti-Rohingya message. And as a result, you know, I don't know if you'll see it, but that opens up political room for special, you know, special tribunals and and, um, other uh, sort of accountability mechanisms of that nature. And, you know, accountability is something that is very difficult under international law, but it does exist, um, you know, if the political will is there and if you can sort of mobilize and get around vetoes. It's not easy, but it is there. There are tools. And so I think that those are the spaces we need to look at and we need to understand how this sort of nexus of uh, traditional conflict really and new technology um, that is deterritorialized de-territorialized um, applies when it comes to the sort of existing rules. Um, and then if we sort of look and find shortcomings, that's when we start thinking about, well, how do we politically create the will within the international community to, um, you know, fill those gaps is it even possible at this point in history or or you know is it going to be i mean again with with even the landmine treaty when you look at how long that took that that was a 50-year effort from the sort of first advocates till it was signed and so you know you do have to think long term and you also have to think about sort of the political realities and how you go about that advocacy
0: so considering that new technologies especially online technologies are probably going to progress. We're going to see new ways of communicating and spreading information and everything that we've talked about so far on this show. I have a final question for you and that's, what do you think the future holds?
1: Well, I'm sure if you already follow me on Twitter, you'll note that I'm, I'm fairly pessimistic. Um, I think, though, my pessimism isn't necessarily... I mean, it, it, it is in part born by technology. Um, but if I were to step back, you know, I think that... I don't think that technology is neutral. Um, but I do think that technology does have good uses and it does have bad uses. And technology, of course, comes about because of investment in those technologies. Um, and so you could argue that, you know, Facebook was not inevitable. Facebook became inevitable because, uh, you know, there there were ways to monetize it and financialize it. And so the role of technology should be understood because as I've been talking about, you know, throughout the show, I think that technology changes our relationship with information. It has that ability to create for political actors to take advantage of it and create new political settlements, if you will. Um, but... We shouldn't just you know, we shouldn't step away and say it's only technology. We we should step we should we should step away, I should say, and 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 remind ourselves that it's not just technology. There are plenty of other factors that drive how technology is developed, how it's regulated, um, and so you know, there's obviously the role of capital, there's the role of states uh, in all of that, um, and we're also at a moment, uh, of course, where the United States is a declining hegemon, um, and you know to dive into, you know, I, 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 I am, I, I'm a bit of a constructivist. But when you sort of buy into the idea that the hegemon, um, that there's sort of there is an order within international relations, in, in the sense that um, you have. Um, states that are subordinate and, and uh, superordinate to other states and other actors as well. I should say you can throw firms, wealthy individuals, groups like ISIS in there as well. They all compete for power on the international stage. And with, um, you know, a declining hegemon like the United States, it had set the rules of the road along with, of course, um, its allies and and other powers that were sort of seeking its, uh, you know, its... its um, largesse and and uh, and and favor over the years, um, and as this sort of uh, you know the hegemon declines, you have other rising powers. You have China, um, and you have, of course, Russia, which is revisionist and resurgent. Um, and what all of that amounts to, of course, is that these states all have different political values. And the reason they're revisionist states is, in a sense, that because the sort of existing global order. Um, the rules have disadvantaged them. Um, and, you know, and frankly, the rules have disadvantaged authoritarian states uh, for the most part. Um, I mean, there's a good reason why states, even even authoritarian states, tend to have um, uh, elections, even if the outcome means the, the the winner gets 99% of the vote and everybody knows they're not free and fair. It's, they're performing sort of what is expected by the sort of... A, existing rules of the road. What that means for the future is hard to say um, because, you know, for example, with, with China, you have a very different set of political values and the role of technology and surveillance within the, the Chinese state is radically different from anything that we would think of as acceptable. And so I think we are heading towards a moment of multipolarity. We're heading towards a moment where you know, humanitarianism as a multilateral activity is more or less um, in decline. And uh, and that's in part because it's become so political, and it's in part because we do see a retrenchment of um, the idea that sort of um, what happens within a state's borders is its own business, and um, that's a very dangerous idea in my mind because that's sort of the notion of sovereignty pre World War II was that you know a state had um, you know human rights weren't really a thing, and a state had Uh, complete power over the individuals within its territory. And, um, you know, so if we progress back towards that, it raises a whole host of questions about how we respond to um, things like um, complex emergencies and conflicts, especially civil conflict. Um, You know, disasters might be another story. I mean, you have the increased localization of aid, which I think is is actually a very powerful tool, um, but it requires, of course, you know, when you look at, say, Syria, again, in the rebel held territories, you had local actors trying to step up and, you know, fill the gap where aid organizations, uh, international aid organizations couldn't go. And, of course, the, they became essentially uh, targets in the conflict. And so I don't know how you deal with those complex emergencies um, and localization of, of aid Um at the same time, uh, especially if you're looking at a world where, you know, human rights matter less or they're in retreat. Um, and so I I don't have a, an optimistic view of the future right now. Um, you know, I also think that and, and we haven't really had time to discuss um, you know, the, the Palantir deal with um, WFP, but I also think that, you know, I shouldn't just solely say that, you know, Russia and China are, you know, uh, pushing a sort of different view of the world. But you also have, you know, organizations um, like Palantir and one of the interesting things and about, you know, that's an American company and it is, you know, the reason this uproar occurred was because they are essentially a defense contractor. The perspective of the humanitarian sector really is that they are a defense contractor and not just a tech company. Um, which creates, of course, the perception of, um, you know, partiality towards U.S. interests. But, but what is more compelling to me, and, and um, you know, I know others are doing, um, you know, work on this, and, and they'd be more, more sort of to sort of speak on it, but it's sort of um, outside of the state interests that they might represent, uh, uh, you know, you see the way that we as a sector engage with technology firms – is very much tied to this notion of surveillance capitalism. And so you see a lot of, um, you know, it doesn't have to be Palantir, it could be a Google or a Facebook that we're engaging with, and, and that is a distinct from the sort of um, political values that I would say you see with China and you see with Russia, and, and maybe even distinct from the last sort of uh, 70 years, of sort of the Western global order, that is its own sort of political agenda that's sort of driven by a very different set of values. Um, and that's also something that we need to be thinking about and wary of. And and so, you know, these are all forces that are, I think, pushing us away from the traditional model of aid um, that we've sort of seen over the last 70 years. And, you know, that's probably a simplification in terms of, I don't want to describe it as monolithic, but, the, there's this sort of uh, Denantist tradition, and Henri Dunant was the founder of the the Red Cross, um, which is a very humanistic, um, very impartial and neutral uh, sort of um, notion of, of humanitarian aid. And a lot of it was, um, you know, human. Cent- it was it was humanist. It was very human centric um, to a very uh, a very different uh, set of competing models um, that are driven by capital, technology, and the political values of multiple states at this point, and uh, I think that's going to be an ongoing uh, struggle that we're, um, as a sector, going to have to grapple with and what it means for our future. Um, and I think that there are a lot of good, smart, young people who are very much aware of, of these risks that are, are pushing the sector to, to have hard discussions. Um, but I don't know that it's necessarily enough when you have a, a – very quickly uh, changing political environment that we need to adapt to. And also when we need to, when these, you know, if these organizations, uh, the international organizations are going to survive, they're going to be sort of self-interested in the sense that they're going to, um, you know, essentially try to meet the the needs of donor states. Um, And um, that may, you know, of course, you know, the donors are going to, have an outsized role in setting the agenda. And so what that means for the future when we're sort of seeing this, this move towards multipolarity, I'm really not sure. Well, I
0: want to thank you so much for coming on the show, Dan and offering your really knowledgeable thoughts on this topic. It seems like it's going to be a constant struggle and constant development with technology and humanitarianism and how the two work together or not work together. Really?
1: Uh, th- well, thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me on the show. And I think I think you're absolutely right. It's it's an ongoing struggle as we sort of figure out the meaning of these technologies in the context of what we do and, of course, sort out the politics um, versus the aspirational aspects of what we do. Um, you know, there's been a huge push towards professionalization of the sector over the last 20 years, and that includes technology. But along with that has come, you know, a culture of, of uh, you know, a risk culture, uh, sort of security culture, um, that, you know, carries its own set of values. And so sort of trying to figure out the meaning of what, uh, you know, those values shifting, um, and the sort of political milieu that in which, in which the sort of sector exists, uh, is going to be a constant struggle. And, and I don't think it's going to, you know, be something that's going to be resolved anytime soon, but I also think that, uh, that's the, you know, you could say the same of sort of the, uh, the international order right now. We're in a period of, of change, and um, we, I think, as a sector, um, both as humanitarians who exist to alleviate suffering, um, and also and, and, and also I would say that, that human rights advocates who, who I would make, you know, distinguish from, from humanitarians for a lot of good reasons, but, but they all, you know, this is going to keep us all very engaged as we, we sort of struggle to figure out what all of this means, um, and we, you know, struggle to advocate on behalf of, you know, um, humanitarian law, humanitarian aid and, um, and human rights, depending on the discipline that you're coming from.
0: Well, once again, thank you so much for coming on the Loopcast and offering your wealth of information on this topic.
1: Thank you.